0: today I want to talk to you about three specific statements that God spoke to me in a very dark time in my life. Those statements are, I want you, I need you, and I love you. So today I want to talk to you about this. God wants you, God needs you, and God loves you. Now throughout our life, I think that we easily believe He loves us, and then there's times we believe maybe He wants us, maybe when we're good. And there's times maybe we think that He might need us, He might not. But once you really believe all three of those statements, and I believe you will 30 minutes from now, it'll change your life. It'll give you a peace that passes all understanding. It'll give you a fire on the inside that'll just burn every day for you to serve God. For you to give everything to Him. For Him to... to to work through you on a daily basis. Once you believe, He wants you. He needs you. And He loves you. 1 Timothy 2.4 says, God our Savior wants, here's His desire, He wants all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. He doesn't want you to believe a lie. He doesn't want you to believe that He doesn't care, doesn't love, doesn't want you. He wants you to believe the truth. He desires you. It goes on to say in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord does not delay what He promises, but He's extraordinarily patient toward you. Not willing. Here's something He doesn't want. Not willing that any should perish. Now we know people do every day, but He doesn't want that. He never rejects them. It goes on to say what He does want, but that all should come to repentance. That's what He wants. He needs you. He loves you. He wants you. One time Jesus was traveling from Judea to Galilee, And Jesus told his disciples in John 4, 4, I must go through Samaria. They said, Jesus, that's the long way. And there's nothing good in Samaria. Jesus said, I must. There's someone I want to meet. There's somebody I need to show my love to. There's someone I need them to do something specific. And so they went through Samaria and they come to a well. Jesus sends his disciples to go get some food and supplies. And the woman at the well shows up. And Jesus tells her, you've been married five times, the man you're with now, you're not even married to, you're living in immorality. He went on to tell her that that he was the Messiah. It changed her life forever. In John 4, 27, the disciples came back and they were shocked. They couldn't believe he was talking with that kind of woman. Society saw her as immoral. She wasn't respected by anybody. But Jesus needed her to be the first woman evangelist in that town. Jesus wanted her on his team. Jesus loved her enough to go out of his way to chase her down. This is what God's love is all about. It has no boundaries. He wants people who are high. He wants people who are living in sexual immorality. He wants people who don't believe. He wants people who are negative, who are living in sin. He wants people who are in prison. He'll go wherever you're at. He wants you. He needs you. He loves you. Psalms 23.6 says, Your goodness and mercy chase after me every day of my life. One time, many years ago, the Myrtle Beach police were chasing after me and they caught me. I was driving a Mustang and they still caught me. Okay, if the, if the police can chase me and catch me, How much more will God's goodness and mercy catch you? Please stop running. He wants you, He needs you, and He loves you. Um, Now, there's a theological truth I want to explain to you, and that is this. God doesn't need anything. I know that kind of goes against what I'm teaching you today, but hear me out. God is self-existent. He doesn't need you to exist. God is self-sufficient. God is self-sustaining. He doesn't need you to continue living tomorrow. He doesn't need you to rule over the universe like he's going to do for the next billion, billion centuries. In fact, one of the attributes of God is that he's eternal. He's infinite. God doesn't need anything to exist. And because God is sovereign... A lot of Christians may have the attitude, well, God, because you're the supreme ruler of the universe, well, que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. I'll just sit back and just kind of see what happens. Years ago, when I was going through that very difficult time, suicide was on my mind every day for about two or three weeks. I mean, I was planning it out. I was all ready. I was just done with this earthly life. And God spoke to me, I want you, I need you, and I love you. And I said, well, you know what? I know you love me, and I love you too. And I believe most of my life, I believe you want me. I do. But God, I don't know if you understand theology. You don't need me. God said, I need you. I said, God, (laughs) you don't need anything. And God said to me, I don't need you to exist. I don't need you in order for me to exist. I need you in order for me to coexist. If I'm going to have a family, I need you. If I'm going to have another son, I need you. If I'm going to have the earth managed, then I need to partner with you. So theologically speaking, God doesn't need anything But He chose. He made a decision to need you and to need me. He needs us to manage the destiny that He has for us on this earth. Let me give you an example. In Genesis 2 verse 19, it says, Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air. And He brought them to Adam to see what Adam would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature... That was its name. Why did God do this? Why didn't God say, Adam, come here, buddy. This is a lion. This is a bear. This is a dog. Why did God ask Adam to do it? Here's why God was starting a partnership, He was starting a relationship. He created Adam to have a relationship. And Adam was a genius. He named all the animals. When God wanted to create someone to relate with Him, He didn't want to create a dummy, He created a genius. And before there was sin, he was a genius. Sin is the thing that takes us away from God. Sin causes us to believe the theory of evolution. It's still a theory. Sin sin takes us away from that relationship. And God said, Adam, I want a relationship. I need you. Now catch this. God did not give Adam the supernatural part. God gave Adam the natural part. God did what Adam could not do. And then God gave Adam what he could do to name the animals. Now, um, Adam had a part, God had a part. God needed Adam to do his part. And a lot of people, as a side note, a lot of people wonder, why did God create Eve after Adam named all the animals? And just as a side note, I personally believe that God knew if he gave Adam a naked woman to live with him, he wouldn't have got any work done. I mean can you picture the you know first day Adam names you know 800 900 species of animal and then God creates Eve and the next day you know God's in the garden Adam 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 look at me Adam I'm talking to you Adam look Adam look at me okay before I created Eve you named 800 animals today you named 3 the blackbird the bluebird and the red bird Adam you got a job. So I think, I think that's why God created Eve after Adam. Anyway, that's just a side note. Let me give you another scripture. Mark 6, verse 5. Jesus could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them and he marveled because of their unbelief. Okay, watch this. God's unlimited power, the supreme ruler of the universe, chose to limit His power according to the people's faith. This all-powerful, omnipresent, omniscient, all-knowing, everywhere God decided to limit His power on earth by how much faith we have. Now listen to this. I wonder how many mighty works He cannot do This all-powerful God cannot do in our life because of unbelief. Where does unbelief come from? It comes from listening to things and watching things that go against God's Word. It comes from things that produce fear. It comes from things that produce uh, anxiety, worry, doubt, discouragement. God needs you to stay filled with faith during this time. He needs you to fill your mind up with the right things so that when you pray, you have the faith for this all-powerful God to move in your life. He needs you. He wants you. And He loves you. In 1 Samuel 17, 4-10. You know, I was asking myself, I wonder if Satan knows this. I wonder if Satan knows that God needs you. If you look at 1 Samuel 17, it says, Then Goliath, a Philistine champion, came out to face the army of Israel. He was a giant measuring 10 feet tall. He stood and shouted to the Israelis, Do you need a whole army to settle this? I represent the Philistines. And then watch this phrase Goliath said, Choose a man. Choose a man for yourselves. If your man's able to kill me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, then you must be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel. Here he says it again send me a man who will come down and fight with me. Now, Goliath is saying this to all of God's people, okay, to the people of Israel. But I believe there was a conversation going on behind the scenes between God and Satan. I believe Satan said, God, I finally got you. I got you. I've been watching how you work. i figured this thing out. I've been watching Noah and Moses and Rebecca and Abraham and Sarah and Joseph and Jacob. I've been watching these people (laughs) and I see what you did. You decided that you have to work through people. You decided a long time ago, God, I've been watching, that when you work on this earth, you got to go through somebody's faith. You got to go through somebody's um, words of faith. You got to go through somebody's obedience, actions. I've seen it, God, and I got the whole thing figured out. You work by the faith of people. And I found a giant that's so tall and so strong and so scary, all of your people are afraid, and you can't work where there's fear. So I'm going to take all your people into bondage because there's not a man in Israel that has the guts to stand up to my giant. And you work through people, God. Satan says, God, I finally got you. There's not a man in your whole nation that will stand up to this giant. And God said, Satan, I don't need a man. I have a boy. And I've been training this boy as a shepherd. Most of his childhood, he's been preparing for this day. And Satan, that boy's about to step out and partner with me and kill your giant. And that day, David allowed God to need him. He let the want and desire of God to pull him into that place of faith. And he stepped out and took Goliath's head off. God wants you. God needs you. And God loves you. You know, studying this, sometimes when I converse with God, I love to check his facts. When he says, you know, I work through, I, I just, I, I believe God, but I love to just check it. Just, just for y'all. I do, it for just, I do it just for y'all. And so I said, God, there's got to be a place in the Bible where you moved, where you worked, where you did something, and you didn't use a person. You just kind of did it. You didn't use a person's faith. You didn't use a person's obedience. You didn't use a person's action. There's got to be a time where you did something without needing somebody. And I remembered this one story. Because, you know, when you think about it, even even when God brought His Son to earth, He chose to need a teenage girl to get this all powerful God onto earth, He went through Mary. So I thought about all the stories in the Bible Genesis, Exodus, bit just kept on going. I remember there was one time where one angel came down and in a second destroyed 185,000 of the enemy troops that had surrounded Israel. So I said, God, I got you. <laughs> I found the time. I remember that story so clear. All of a sudden, the angel shows up in one second. 185,000 enemy troops died. At the hands of the angel. And all of Israel saved. I remember the story. And God said, go and read it. I said, okay, great. So I read it. And I'm looking through the chapter. And God did this. And God did this. And God did this. And, God, and then all of a sudden, I found three words. Three words that forever changed the course of Israel's destiny. Three words. The prophet Isaiah Goes and meets with the king, Hezekiah. And he says to him in 2 Kings 19, verse 20. Because you prayed. Because you prayed. I sent an angel to wipe out 185,000 of the enemy's troops. One man partnered with God. And the whole nation changed its course. Listen, God won't do your part. He wants you, He needs you, and He loves you. In Romans 5, verse 12, it says, When Adam sinned, sin entered the entire human race, and death came to everyone. To me, that sounds a little bit fishy, a little bit unfair. And if I were God, I wouldn't have done it like that. But you know what? God did that. One man sinned, and the whole world was condemned. One man messed up, and the whole world was filled with sin. One man did the wrong thing, and now everybody's got to pay for it. And you may think as well, that's a little strange, that's a little bit unfair, but the truth is, it was brilliant. Because one man lost it all, it only takes one man to get it all back. In Romans 5 verse 19, it says, Because one man disobeyed God, all became sinners. But because Christ obeyed God, many will be made righteous. One man condemned the world, and one man gave forgiveness for the entire world who will receive it. So, remember the phrase earlier. Goliath said, Choose a man who will come down and fight. Choose a man. If I win, I get them all. If you win, if he wins, he gets everybody. Is it possible there was a conversation just like that between God and Satan behind the scenes? Satan says, God, choose a man. You pick any man you want. Let's do this once and for all. I'm tired of all this going back and forth. Let's have one final battle. This winner takes all. God, you choose a man to fight with me, Satan says. Choose a man to come down and face me. God said, okay, I'll take it. We'll do it. I choose Jesus. Satan said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. <laughs> you can't choose Jesus. Jesus isn't a man. And God thought about it and said, well, I'll just have to make him a man then. And Jesus, as a man, he lived the life that I could not live. He died the death that I should have died. And because of him, he won freedom for the entire world, for every person who will choose to be wanted, Needed and loved by the creator of the universe. Your part is this. Receive it. Receive it. When Jesus died on the cross, he immediately went into hell. How did Jesus, who lived a perfect life, end up in hell when he died? Here's how. First Peter 2.24 Because he personally bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He took every sin you've committed, every bad thought, every evil action. He took the sin of rape and the sin of murder. And he took the sin of little white lies, the sin of going over the speed limit, disobeying the laws of the land. He took every sin, every sin. And he ended up down in hell. I could just close my eyes and picture Jesus laying there on the ground. It looks like he's dead as a doornail. And every demon came to have this celebration and this huge victory party like a stadium filled with demons. I mean the demon of cancer to the demon of the common cold. Every demon. And I can almost hear them roaring with excitement as if they did something wonderful. I can hear Satan grab the microphone and say, demons, aren't you glad you left heaven and followed me? I told you thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago, one day it'd be worth it. One day we would take control of this earth. One day we would be in charge. And look, today it's come. The Son of God is laying at my feet. Dead as a doornail. We have won the victory. And all the demons just laugh and cheer and scream and yell. And then all of a sudden, Jesus starts to move. He moves one shoulder, moves the next. He very slowly begins to stand to his feet. He looks at Satan in the eyes. And says, Satan, what do you think you're doing? Satan says, Jesus, you don't have a chance in hell to defeat us. You're surrounded by every demon in the universe. And in my imagination, at that point, the music starts. Jesus looks at Satan in his eyes He says, come on, Satan, make my Easter day. Can you imagine what happened when the two most powerful forces in the universe come together to do battle in the pits of hell? The Bible indicates that for nearly three days, Jesus was in the depths of hell and fought every demon power, including Satan himself. In Colossians 2.15, it says, Christ defeated all forces and made a public spectacle of them during his victory celebration. Jesus grabbed Satan by the neck, dragged him through every corridor in hell to make sure that each demon saw very clearly that Jesus was and is the undisputed, undefeated champion of all time. After those three days, Jesus rose from the dead and He sent His own Holy Spirit. Not the spirit of fear. Not the spirit of strife. Not the spirit of confusion. Not the spirit of sickness. Not the spirit of depression. He sent the same Spirit that rose Him from the dead to live in your heart. Romans 8.11 The same Spirit who raised Christ from the dead dwells in you. Don't you dare tell me that He doesn't want you, need you, or love you after doing everything He did for you. John 3.16 says God loved the world so much that He gave His only Son so whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. I want to close today with a linguistic illustration for you. Stay with me, okay? Stay with me. When I preach to you, I preach using words one of three different ways. I can speak to you um, univocally. Univocally is when you take a word and it has just one meaning. If I say, I love you, and if I say that our administrator, Trisha, she loves you as well. Same word, love. And I'm using it the same way. Sometimes I'll speak to you equivocally. Equivocally is when you use a word that has more than one meaning. In other words, if I say, I love you. And I say, I love my wife. Now, don't be offended, but I don't love you the same way. I love my wife. Same word different meanings um another example if you maybe you think that your pastor is incredibly handsome if that's the case and you're on a plane one day going somewhere and someone's sitting next to you and you say oh what's your name and they say oh my name is brad pitt and you don't know it and you say what do you do and he says i'm an actor and you say what else and he he's holding a magazine he says well i also got you know uh sexiest man alive and he shows you the magazine and you say to him brad do you think you're handsome and brad will say what You know, I think I'm kind of handsome. And you say to him, man, if you think you're handsome, you should see my pastor. Now, okay, same word, totally two different meanings. It's very obvious that I am much more handsome than Brad Pitt. Same word, two different meanings, okay? The third way I preach to you is analogically. Analogically is when you use a word. But it actually means something deeper and higher. When I talk to you about God's love for you, it's very difficult to communicate it with the language that I'm limited to. I don't have enough words or expressions in my vocabulary to really be able to teach you how much God wants you and needs you and loves you. Even though it's difficult, I'm going to try. Okay. When God says he loves you. When you refuse his love, he hurts. But he hurts because you have lost something. It's it's a totally unselfish love. Uh, When I say I love you, if you reject me, I hurt but I hurt because I've lost something. I've, I've lost that. I, I, it feels good for you to receive my love and my friendship, but when you reject me, I hurt. It hurts my feelings. But when you reject God, He hurts, but He hurts in a different way. There are two times in the Bible where we're told Jesus wept. Once is in John eleven thirty five. It's the shortest verse in the Bible. It says Jesus wept. And it's talking about when Lazarus died. But Jesus did not weep when Lazarus died. Read the story. Jesus did not weep when Lazarus died because He knew He was going to raise Lazarus back from the dead. Jesus wept when He saw how bad it hurt Mary and Martha. When He saw their pain, He weeped because they were in pain. Because they had lost something. The other time Jesus wept, was the last time that he entered the city of Jerusalem. The reason he wept is because he knew that Jerusalem had lost something. That particular generation had rejected him as Messiah. And in Luke 19.41 it says, As Jesus approached Jerusalem, he wept. All because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. In which God showed himself gracious toward you and offered you salvation. It's totally your choice. But if you reject his love. He's going to hurt. Because he knows that means you have lost everything. It's a totally unselfish love. If you've watched this broadcast so far, I want to encourage you sometime today. If you have a fear of dying, if you have a fear of an uncertain future, if you have a fear that you're alone or that you're not going to be in heaven for all of eternity, I want you to get alone with God today. Be honest with Him. Tell Him how you feel. Tell Him what you think. But when it's all said and done, somewhere in your communication with Him, you need to explain in your own words that you recognize you can do absolutely nothing apart from Him. There's no good in you apart from Jesus Christ. You need to communicate to Him that not only do you want a relationship with Him now, you're not just trying to avoid hell. You actually want a relationship with Him for all of eternity. You want to go to heaven because He's there. And somewhere in that prayer, you need to also say, God, I want for the rest of my life on earth for you to work through me. I want to be a vessel used by you. So I encourage you today, receive this. God wants you, God needs you, and God loves you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.